Would you please stand with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures from three passages? From Genesis 1:28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every other living thing that moves on the earth. From Genesis 11:1-4, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And as they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. From Revelations 21, 1 through 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, we are nearing the end of a series that I've never quite tried to do before as a, as a Bible teacher, um, but hopefully it's been all right. It's, uh, we've been considering the gifts of God in every good thing that we encounter in, in, in life. Our, our, our basic thesis verse has come from the book of James that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of light. So if there is any genuinely good thing you've encountered in your life, the, the, the biblical authors claim in the whole story of the Bible, front to back, validates this, that that good thing is not just random happenstance, it's not just, uh, you know, some random occurrence, it is a gift from God meant for your enjoyment. But not just to stop there, but to, to be a reminder and a point of connection with Him, that we're meant to, in the words of C.S. Lewis, chase the sunbeam up to the sun itself, from the gift up to the gift giver, and find a point of connection, a point of praise, a point of communion with, with God Himself. Um, so we've, we've been in the series now, I think, 13 weeks. Today we're going to be considering one final gift, one final gift. We've considered all kinds of things. The last one we're going to consider is the gift of the city, or the gift of cities in particular. And then next week we're going to kind of tie it all together with one final message. Um, but the gifts of cities. We live in a city. If you're here, you live in a city. Certainly, um, by biblical standards, we live in a, an area, even if you live in the suburbs or whatever, you live in an area of, of population that's sort of unknown to the biblical world. Um, but certainly, if you live in the urban core of Portland, uh, which I know many of you do, probably the majority of you do, we live in a city. Um, and, you know, cities are full of wonderful things and challenging things. Um, I can think of, I've told this story before, but I can think of a particular day, uh, and I might be conflating a couple of stories, but that, that the heart of this, the heart of this remains truthful. I hope you'll, you'll trust me here. I remember early on when we moved to Portland, uh, you know, we were, I think, just days into our life. We lived in an apartment down on 24th and Gleason, my wife Susanna and I, and some friends who lived here that actually we knew from uh, back in Arkansas. They had moved here before us and they said, hey, let's go get some brunch or whatever, as, as you do. 
And so we went and we uh, walked down to Screen Door, which is still there, still there on Gleason, wonderful breakfast spot if you've never been there. And we got on the list, like, oh, it's going to be like an hour and a half wait. I'm like, oh, great. Well, that's actually great. It's fine. When you don't have kids and you're just wandering the city, you're like, okay, sure, we'll come back an hour and a half. So we walked down up the street to Heart Coffee on Burnside, which was a revelation to me. I was, I've always been a coffee person from like seven years old. But I remember the first, <laughs> actually, it's kind of funny. My mom, we would go to like IHOP or something. And you know the little like creamer, thimble-sized things? My mom was like, you can have that much coffee. So I would, like my mom would pour the cream and I'd be like, mom, give me that thing. And I'd make her like fill it up to the brim. And I would just like try to savor it, sip on it for five minutes or so. That's how we got started. Um, but anyway, having heart coffee was this revelation, which is still my favorite roaster in town. Just, just so complex and good and like, oh, amazing. And we were having this lo lovely conversation. It was a beautiful summer day, much like today. Uh, not a cloud in the sky. We got the, we got the, the ding for uh, Screen Door. I walked down to Screen Door. I had this amazing Portland brunch. Have you ever had their homemade hot sauce they have there? Oh, my gosh. Incredible. Um, so chicken and waffles with the hot sauce all over. And, yeah, maybe wandered then to another cafe, found another good cozy spot to sit outside. And I remember just thinking, what a lovely, lovely day. What a lovely, lovely city. What a lovely experience. And then... Just remember, you know, sitting outside, reflecting, thinking, just enjoying, soaking up the conversation and the food that we've had, the experiences we've had, and then just this interesting smell started to sort of waft across my face. Oh, what's that? This is new to me, new experience. What, what is this new joy that perhaps Portland has to offer? Turn the corner, you know, kind of look the other direction, and it was the naked bike ride. <laughs> Every time I tell that story, I focus on the smell. I'm not sure why. I think it's because it's deeply disturbed me. Um, which, you know, maybe the naked bike ride's your thing. Uh, maybe it's not. I, it's not my thing. I don't, uh, I don't foresee myself ever enjoying to do it or to look at those who do do it. Um, but my point is this. <laughs> Got the, the beautiful side of, of Portland, keep Portland weird, the uniqueness, the, the craftiness the, the beauty of something like the food scene, and then I would say sort of the, the macabre side of Cape Portland Weird, which is like, man, just, I don't want that. I don't want that right now. Portland has been through a distinctly challenging three years. Uh, 2020, 2021, 2022, we're now into 2023. These have been hard times for our city. Um, our city has taken a beating both from outside factors, both to poor city and state governmental decisions, um, Frankly, the fleeing of a lot of good people who are in the Portland area who've said, I don't want anything to do with this. What happens when all the people who, you know, long for better in a city flee and go elsewhere? It's not good. Um, we could go on and on and on. In many ways, like the, the, the sort of funny, like, you know, the Portlandia dream. Portland was on the radar as kind of this, like, you know, hipster haven where young people go to retire, you know, thanks to, to Fred Armisen. Uh, in the early 2000s or mid 2000s or whenever that was, 2010s? I don't, I don't remember now. It's been too long. Um, and yeah, kind of this quirky paradise. But I think, I think over the last three years, there's been kind of a subtle sifting of that image to now a city that's you know, nationally kind of associated with danger and uh, uh, some, of the, some of the negative sides of urbanization. Maybe you felt that. I know some of you felt that. Some of you have felt a little bit less safe um, 
you know, taking your neighborhood walks or whatever else. Uh, my point is this. Portland, like every major city in the U.S., is a mix. It's mixture. There's beautiful things that happen when you get a lot of image bearers of God together and they collaborate and there's that diversity of gifts and uh, the sort of economies of scale that come with all kinds of different people doing all kinds of different things and utilizing the gifts of one another to build something. There's beauty there. There's joy there. There's much to love in our city. But then, when you get a bunch of image bearers of God who also are, as the Bible declares, fallen, who are flawed, who are sinful, who don't always prioritize the goods and the needs of themselves or especially of others, uh, it can compound into greater and greater uh, ugliness, greater and greater tragedy, greater and greater challenge. And I think we see both of those things in our city in particular. So I want to start by considering the city in the Bible. And I just want to, I'm, I don't always do this, but I think this is one of those where the chalkboard will be of use. Um, so we're going to use it. It's so cool just to always be sitting here unused. So we'll, we'll make use of it this time. I am so sorry. Who, who did this? Was that June? Sorry, June. Was that a self-portrait? Was that? Oh, it was Elsa. Okay. Sorry, Elsa. We can get Elsa back after service. So the story of the city and the Bible, I mean, the Bible's a big collection of books. And, uh, you know, what we can say in five minutes here on simple line picture is only scratching the surface, but I think it, we can... We can we can scratch the surface in a way that's helpful. So the story of the Bible, Clements read it for us. It begins, oh, well, we've been in this story again and again and again over the course of the series, but it begins with creation. The God who gives, choosing to freely create, creates this amazing world. He orders it, and he creates his image bearers as the pinnacle of creation on the sixth day, man and woman who are meant to be his representatives, ruling underneath him and alongside him. And the verse that Clements read for us in verse 28, it says something very interesting. That one of the fundamental tasks God gives to his people at the beginning is this. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Um, and we've, we don't have to belabor this. We've been talking about the idea of the first created state. Creation is good and humanity is placed in a garden. Um, and they are meant to cultivate that garden, to take the goodness and the beauty of this God-created garden and to extend it outwards. And what we see here is that humans, along with that, are meant to be fruitful and multiply. They're meant to have children. The idea is that they're going to expand and to fill the whole earth. And so there's people, there's people, I don't know, I guess we'll just draw the two. There's two people, and there's meant to be a lot more people if they're going to be faithful to God's uh, command here. Okay, what does this have to do with the city? Because what we have is this garden paradise that uh, seems very simple, very agrarian, very lovely. Uh, we've spent a whole message talking about the beauty and the glory of gardening, gardens and farms and all those kinds of things. Go back and listen to that if you, if you weren't here. Um, so that's all well and good. What does this have to do with the city? Like, would the vision, if humanity hadn't fallen, would it just be like further and further spreading and spreading and spreading and just more and more garden, garden, garden? And I... My, we don't know because by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, there's the fall. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 4, uh, Cain is murdering his brother Abel and fleeing to go build a city for himself uh, out of protection for himself and out of fear of God and so on and so forth. So we don't know. The first city we see in the Bible is one motivated by um, 
kind of fear and a desire for protectionism and those kinds of things. But Clements also read for us the last chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. And what we have there is the garden, but now it's encased in this glorious city called the New Jerusalem. And that's just how we'll illustrate that. And there's still people there, lots of people, in fact, more than just the two. And I think all of the imagery of Genesis or of Revelation 21 and 22 and its connections to the tree of life and the river of life and uh, just this picture of human flourishing and the diversity of human cultures bringing their gifts into this new glorious city. I think the amount of continuity between what we see in the first chapters and the last chapters is meant to tell us, like, this is kind of the state. Like, Revelation 21 and 22 is an opportunity for a new beginning. It's like the reconsummation, the recreation of the world. Everything is back and well. God did not have to bring this glorious city down to dwell with his people. And it could have just been another really big garden or whatever. My theory, my idea is that the city was inevitable. If humans hadn't fallen, they would have continued to make more humans and more humans and organize themselves and build cities, build cities, much like the one we see at the end of the biblical story, the story that uh, the the city that we're all going to live in one day if we're followers of Jesus. So that's my hunch. My hunch is that the city is not inherently evil. Of course it's not, if this is where going to be the eternal home of uh, God with his people, but that it would have been the result. But, okay, so if we've got our timeline, it's moving this direction, but it's not just a seamless, seamless move from, from garden to really beautiful garden city. No, we have the fall in Genesis 3 into sin and death, injustice, oppression, violence, so on and so forth. The world is different now. And cities now, in the here and now, uh, as I said, Cain's city is the first one that we get mention of. Cain's city is one where after he's murdered his brother, he goes and he flees and he needs a place for protection. He needs a place to kind of hunker down. We also have another one in Genesis that uh, Clements read for us, which is Babel or Babylon. It develops into, which kind of becomes uh, a condensed symbol for human culture arraying itself against the rule, over against the rule and reign of God. Like we, from from the story that Clements read for us, they said basically we want to make a name for ourselves. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. We don't need God. We are going to rule on our own terms apart from Him. And Babylon, over the course of the biblical narrative, becomes this gigantic empire that becomes one of the greatest thorns in in, uh, the people of God's side, one of the most wicked nations. Horrific, horrific the stuff that Babylon would do. So we get this this kind of theme running throughout. And then another important city, it's also the city of Jerusalem, which is founded later, the biblical story. But this is the attempt of the people of God to try to bring kind of a hint of this into the here and now. What would it be like to have a city that's not built on oppression and injustice and all these sorts of things that the human city has been known for up to this point? What if we could have a city deeply in tune with the character and promises, nature of God, a city that was built on justice, a city that's kind of trying to honor him, 
But of course, the biblical story, you know, goes and basically it proves untenable. Like there's, there's moments of glory and greatness, but overall, Jerusalem continues to fall into the same patterns that mark these nations. And what happens in the end, Jerusalem actually gets wiped out as an act of judgment from God by Babylon, taken into exile, into captivity there uh, for a long season. So in the New Testament, you pick up and the Roman, Roman, Rome has basically taken the place of Babylon at this point. And this is where the people of God find themselves, the ones that are still faithful. They find themselves under the thumb of the oppressive Roman Empire, uh, knowing that this can't really be their home. It's not hospitable to them. Uh, and, and then even by the time we have Jesus and his, his birthing of the church, the language is always as the people of God, as this contrast community who just does thing, things differently. Yes, we want to see our neighbors flourish, of course, but we recognize that this place is never going to be our home and that our citizenship here will always have to become secondary to our citizenship in the heavenly city with God. So the city is a complicated picture throughout the Bible, but it's bookended in this wonderful picture of the garden-turned-garden city to the glory of God. A few other things we could say about cities. They're places of density. So Tim Keller, who, who RIP, who wrote and thought often about the meaning of the city from a church planner's perspective, he sort of popularized the idea of, kind of repopularized the idea of kind of um, urban mission and urban churches uh, for, for really a, a whole generation. He said this, he said, the most common Hebrew word for the city, ir, meant any human settlement surrounded by some fortification or wall. Most ancient cities numbered only about 1,000 to 3,000 in population. But listen to this. But the residents were tightly packed within that city wall. Therefore, according to the Bible, the essence of a city was not the population's size, but its density. A city is a social form in which people physically live in clocks proximity to one another. Okay, this is where it gets really crazy. He says, in fact, most ancient cities were estimated to be five to ten acres in size, not that big, containing an average of 240 residents per acre. By comparison, the island of Manhattan in present-day New York City houses only 105 residents per acre, and that's with high-rises. So these were dense, densely packed areas, places of density. Cities were also places of protection. As I said, the first city in the Bible built by Cain was a place of self-protection so that life could flourish. In his case, this was meant to be apart from God and from other people who meant to uh, threaten him or do him harm. Walls, a city wall, limited the amount of physical vulnerability a person had. If you were just a family or an individual just camping, tenting out in the, you know, the Judean wilderness or whatever, you were always vulnerable to bandits, to robbers, to, the, to whoever. To be outside the city was largely to subject yourself to sort of a might-makes-right mentality. Do they have more swords than us? Okay, well, I guess they're going to take our stuff. The city represented a means of protection pooled resources and power so that people within could be less vulnerable. Eventually, Israel's cities were commanded in the Torah to become places of refuge, specifically for immigrants and sojourners of various types. This idea gets taken even further. And then maybe one other thing we should say about the cities, about cities in the Bible is that they're places of amplification. 
They are places where both the good and the bad of humanity just get blown up for, for all to see. And that's just a result of that density idea. If you've got a lot of people together, you're going to see an aggregate of their good qualities and their bad qualities at massive scale. And we'll say more, more about that soon. So that's just a brief picture of kind of the complicated way in which the, the, the Bible talks about city. But let's keep going. Let's keep going. On that last point specifically, it is common, it is really common for theologians to speak of human cities like magnifying glasses. Like they multiply, they magnify the strengths and weaknesses of humans by virtue of just the number of people crammed together and collaborating. And I love the way that English pastor Andrew Wilson kind of describes this. He's, he says, cities are to cultures what espresso is to Americano. Simply by clustering a large number of people in one place, cities both condense human society and they exaggerate it, making its vices and virtues far easier to see. The strengths of a civilization, its artistic, intellectual, cultural, social, military achievements are almost certain to be clustered in the cities. Then again, so are its weaknesses, divisions, injustices, and sins. I am writing this in a cafe in London, and it's the kind of cafe where they all sell <laughs> vegan cocoa and oat milk and everything comes with tahini or smashed avocado. There are tables spilling out into the streets which are lined with flower sellers and organic butchers and craft beer shops and restaurants. There's a vast urban park two minutes walk away and a stunning private housing estate even nearer than that. The whole area feels spacious, leafy, prestigious, and rich. But if you walk a few hundred yards from here, you quickly find yourself surrounded by social deprivation and inadequate housing. You notice substance abuse and homelessness. Trash has not been removed. Greedy replace, graffiti replaces flowers. People work three jobs to get the equivalent of one good salary rather than one job to get the equivalent of three. And then if you keep walking for another few hundred yards, you reappear in another gentrified area surrounded by more cafes serving tahini or smashed avocado. The amazing capacities for good, for beauty, for truth, for justice, and for love that humans possess are often heightened, seen in a heightened way in cities. And the amazing capacity for evil, ugliness, lies, injustice, and hatred that humans possess are often heightened in cities. This is a series called the God of Every Good Thing. So instead of belaboring the dangers and the ugliness that we often find in cities, what I really want to try to focus in on is the good. I really want to focus in on the beauty, the gifts that we see in cities. So if you, if you feel by the end of this, like you've just papered over all the ugliness of, of, of city life, I, that's not my intention. But our focus here is to see the good gifts of God that are around us, even in the city of Portland. Even in the city of Portland. So think of the gifts that we've been specifically highlighting. So we kind of laid a theological foundation for the first four weeks, and then we've been each week just kind of looking at particular avenues of the gifts of God. And think about some of these. Think about some of these and, and their connection even to cities. So we talked about first people and community. People, other people are one of the fundamental gifts of God. God declared back before the fall that it is not good for man to be alone. We are designed for one another. We are designed to live in community. We are designed to treasure and cherish human interaction and relationships. It remains the case that it is not good to be alone. And if that is true, then cities carry a lot, a lot of goodness in them by virtue of having a lot of people in them 
See what I mean? If there are a lot of people, that means there are so many opportunities to savor the amazing creative complexity and diversity that he has baked into us. Sure, from things like race, cultural background, but even down to the fine-tuned elements of each individual person. Not to get creepy, but each person's body. Like, we all look different. We all look different, and that is part of the creative array of God's design. Then to talk about personality as well. No two people are exactly the same. Some of us are more alike than others, and that's cool. Some of us are very, very different from others, and that's wonderful as well. In a city, you get to see a far wider cross-section of humanity than you might otherwise, and that is a gift from God for the reasons we discussed seven weeks ago. It's not just people and community. There's also that idea of, of, of the garden life. You know, cities can be places where, you know, what's the, what's the old song? You pave paradise to put up a parking lot. Is that Joni Mitchell that originally sang that? Horrifically, I always think of the Counting Crows version of that song. <laughs> who, who sings that with him? Anybody remember? Who? Joni Mitchell's the original, but then like in the 90s, there was like Counting Crows and someone else singing a version that's really grating. Anyway, I think it's okay if we don't get to the bottom of that mystery. But the city can take on an adversarial relationship to nature and the beauty, the goods of the garden and farming and all the, the just the lush natural world that we have been discussing. But cities planned well and designed well and uh, I think like Portland is a good case of that, a good example of this. They make space to work in harmony with the natural world and they become something that can actually even help us appreciate and, and, and further lift up the glories and goods of gardens and the natural world. Think of food. We spent a whole week talking about the gifts of God found in food and Portland, thank God, is a food city, friends. If you have the ears to hear, let yourself hear. We have good food here and you should, uh, you should partake of it to the degree that is financially responsible. Uh, but we, yeah, it's a bastion for incredible cuisine from the world over, world-class chefs. For, for I know it's getting expensive, it's expensive here, but here for a fraction of the price that you would find in many other major cities in terms of food. We get to see the, the, the fruits of incredible artists with food, and not just with food, but with the arts in general. We have an incredibly thriving artistic community in this city, from music to the fine art to whatever else, everything in between, even to the really strange, bizarre stuff. Like <laughs> people who are just doing things like, I am not sure that that's a thing, and I'm not sure that it should be a thing, but you've made it a thing, and I respect it. And thank you for making our city a little bit weirder. We've talked about the gifts of work. I think it goes without saying. Cities are obviously places where work can become an idol, where work can become oppressive, all those kinds of things, but there are wonderful opportunities for work and for good work here in the city. Think of the gifts of science we discussed uh, weeks ago. What was that, two weeks ago? Gifts of science even, the science that enables us to have things like these amazing bridges that connect our city and these you know, tall buildings and even to the small things that help us get around the city. Even things we don't think of as like scientific achievements, like my bike, I usually commute around on bicycle here in the city and that is this little scientific machine created by somebody, I don't know who, first bicycle developed. The wheel goes back pretty far, I think, as far as I know. It's this amazing little, little work of science that enables us to use the power of our legs to get around really efficiently. It's wonderful. 
My point is this. Cities, again, are places of this creativity and this cultural energy that, that condense and lift up all these amazing gifts from God and from God through His image bearers that we get to enjoy. And thank God for it. Thank God for it. So, a beautiful Portland day. You get to enjoy a good meal, commune with some friends, you know, take a glance up at Mount Hood, walk through, a, walk through a beautiful park or forest. These are gifts from God. These are gifts from God, and we are right to notice them, to not just let them pass us by, and to praise God for them, and to drink them in. So, the city as my first point, can be thought of as a storehouse, a condensed storehouse of the many gifts of God that we have been talking about. The second thing that's unique to the city in, in a fallen world is that the city is a gospel opportunity. So if you're a Christian, I hope you believe that you have received and believed and trusted in the greatest news the world could ever hear. That there is a creator God, but that he's not a malicious tyrant. He is a giver. He is a lover. He is one who created the world in glorious abundance as sheer gift to the creations that he loves. Most of all, his image-bearing people, men and women. And that even whenever they rejected him, even whenever they said, we are going to take the right to reign into our own hands, we are going to define good and evil for ourselves, we are going to do this our way, we are going to separate ourselves from you, God, and from your loving provision, he continues to pursue after them and to seek them, culminating in the giving of his son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to die in their place that they might not have to die, that they might not have to suffer the final, ultimate spiritual death that is owed all of us for our rebellion, that he did everything necessary to bring us home. Even, as the scriptures declare, when we were his enemies— he died for us. And that he promises that all, this, all the junk that we've been talking about, sickness, sin, death, oppression, whatever, all of it will finally be dealt with one day. That there is a future, a glorious, hope-filled, beautiful future promised to us that is realer, realer than we can even imagine. And that the key into this future and into this life and into this grace is not through any kind of achievement. It's not through doing enough stuff. It's not through being a spiritual enough person. It's not through anything other than simply trusting in the goodness of this God, simply trusting in what he has done for us, simply entrusting in the sacrifice of Jesus, that it is enough, receiving it into ourselves, following after him. We believe we have the best news in the whole world. And not just the news, but we have a commission. I mean, when Jesus commissioned his disciples at, right before his ascension, he said, you're going to take this message to the ends of the earth. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. That's the task. That's the task for us. And cities then, if that's the task, if we have good news and we have a task to share it, cities are incredible, crucial places for this work. First of all, because of the population density we talked about. This goes back to the book of Jonah. At the end of Jonah, you know the story of Jonah. He's this uh, sort of reluctant prophet who does not want to go preach the mercy of God to this horrific 
In, the, in, in, in this case, it's the Assyrian Empire, uh, the capital Nineveh. He does not want them to receive the mercy of God because they're so horrific. This was a nation that would flay the skins of their enemies and drape them over their city walls. Horrific. Horrific. And Jonah commissions him to go and preach to them that they might repent and find the grace of God. And he's like, I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm not doing this. And that's the story. At the end of the story, Jonah is still, you know, angry about, you know, this message that, and some, some in the city have repented. Uh, and God has relented in his judgment, and he's, Jonah's still angry about it. And God says to him at the end of the story, verse 11, he says, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? That's interesting. It's a city of horrific injustice, but he looks at both the, the, the animal life that's there. There are lots of animals here. Guess what? God cares about them. He says it right here. And 120,000 people who do not know their right from their left also that God cares about. Of course, I pity them, Jonah. I love everything that I've created. I love them. So that the idea of this, this Jonah statement here is that the density in Nineveh in particular means that God has an extra special care and concern. Not that he doesn't care about more sparsely populated areas. He loves everyone. But the, the logic here is that there are so many people here in this city that I, I've got to care for this place. So too should we, Door of Hope. The population density means it is a place we should care about because there are people here that God cares about, lots of them. But more than that, cities carry all sorts of other benefits. I mean, think about the international diversity that's in cities, here in our city. People from all over the world come. That's why I love what Joel does with the international student ministry. He has an intentional outreach to students who are here uh, studying in the States for a few years, trying to make disciples, trying to help them see the beauty and the goodness and the love and the grace of Jesus, that they might then take what they've received and take it back, take it back to their country, some of which um, are like Portland desperately, desperately need the gospel where it is not. Cities are also full of, uh, for some of these same reasons, full of the poor. And you might think, well, what do you mean? What's the opportunity there? Well, guess what? The poor are among the groups of people that God cares most deepest for. They're part of that quartet of the vulnerable that God's heart just beats for. So if we have a heart like God, we will care for the urban poor. We care for the poor everywhere, but there's a concentration in the urban environments, is there not? That's reason to love the city and to seek the welfare of the city on behalf of those who need it, who the heart of God beats for. Cities are often places for struggling searchers as well. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard uh, just as a pastor at Door of Hope over the last, I guess it's been eight years or so, um, of, of people who grew up in sort of Bible Belt culture uh, who ended up rejecting for some legitimate reasons the faith that they were sort of immersed in and flee to cities to start a new life, to get away from what they, what they feel is an oppressive environment or whatever. And there are all kinds of people who come to the city looking for a new spirituality, a new take on things, a new uh, life. Those are people that God cherishes and loves, and there is opportunity there to meet them, maybe with, not with the caricature, perhaps, that they grew up with, but with, with the Jesus that loves them beyond, they, beyond their ability to imagine. 
Another thing about the, the city as a gospel opportunity is the amount of social influence that takes place in cities. I like the way that Aaron Wren puts this. He says, major urban cities are critical nodes because they control the country's economy, industry, and government. Institutions that affect all Americans are located there. It's technology in the Bay Area, finance in New York, entertainment in LA, biotechnology and elite higher education in Boston, and the federal government in Washington that makes these coastal centers some of the most powerful locations in the country. Decisions made at institutions like Google, Disney, the New York Times, the Defense Department, and Harvard have profound effects on all of us. For these reasons, cities are strategic. If we want to see the gospel transform key institutions, the church must be present and robust in cities. And he's not getting at, nor am I getting at, any sort of, you know, theocratic idea where, you know, what we really need to do is the remingling of church and state. And if, you know, if Cameron could just be the president or something, then, you know, things would really get sorted out then. No, I think separation of church and state is a deep, deeply valuable, is deeply valuable. But, but if we believe that the God of the universe, as revealed in the scriptures and most finally in the person of Jesus, really does have the ultimate, truest vision, most beautiful vision of human flourishing, then we should want people with that vision uh, influencing others and, and working towards that flourishing wherever they find themselves. Cities, gospel presence in cities is one of the way, key ways that that will happen. I'm not sure, I feel like there, there's, what do you think Portland's like, ex, I feel like Portland is like a taste-making city, but what is our like export? It's not, it's not technology, it's not, uh, what is it? Weirdness, yeah, yeah, there's, there's something there. I, I, we need the language for it. Maybe we'll think. Let's, let's all meditate on that for the next while. But Portland, too, has its, has its influence. Making a gospel impact in this city will reach beyond just itself. Okay. Okay, city as storehouse of the gifts of God, the city as gospel opportunity. And last one, and this is brief, and we'll, we'll wrap up here is think of the city as our identity and our future. First, our identity. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. He says to his, to his, to his listeners, to those who would hear him and do what he's saying, who would trust him enough to follow after him, he says this, you are the light of the world. A city, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we see a couple of important ideas there. The first is that um, the people of Jesus together filled with and empowered by his Holy Spirit, are meant to be a contrast city in the midst of our mixed cities. So I don't remember why I drew this line earlier, but now I know, now I have a reason for it. And it's the day of Pentecost. This was the day that the church began in earnest. This was the day that God poured out his Holy Spirit on his people to empower them and to lead them in a new way. And this was the day that the church outright started. And on this side of Pentecost, it's very, very clear, this is what so many New Testament authors are getting at, it's that our allegiance is not to Rome, it's not even to Jerusalem, it's certainly not to Babylon, but it's to the heavenly city. 
to the heavenly city. Or, another way you could put that, is to the kingdom of God. We're called to be good citizens. Paul spends a lot talking about this. We're, we're to bless those around us, be, be the best possible citizens we can up and until the point where it puts us in contrast with our ultimate allegiance, which is to our genuine king, King Jesus. King Jesus and his kingdom. His city, the heavenly city. So we together, the, the, the people of God, Christians all over the world, together are described by Jesus as a city on a hill. A city on a hill. So our identity is no longer chiefly as American or wherever else you're from, but it's as citizens of the heavenly city and the kingdom of God. But the purpose of that, just as it was for ancient Israel, and they botched it so deeply just as we botch it so deeply today, is not just to be a little holy huddle for our own benefit and good, but we are meant to be a contrast city for the good of the cities we find themselves in. That's what Jesus says. Lost my verse here. What is the conclusion of that verse? He says, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works, the, the good things that you're doing, your love, your generosity, your graciousness, the fruit of the Spirit born out in your life, and what? And give glory to God who is in heaven that they might see his goodness through you and choose to follow after him as well. So we are meant to be a contrast city, but that is meant to be something that calls people into the love and the mercy and the grace of the God that we follow. We, Door of Hope Northeast, are meant to be, we are meant to be different from Portland. Your allegiance is not to Portland. Your chief values cannot be the chief values of Portland. But do not let that curdle into a sort of adversarial, I hate these people, I hate this city, whatever else. That's easy to do. It's a common temptation. I'm hearing a lot of that. Do not let it curdle, that distinction curdle into that. Remember that our difference is for the good of Portland that Portland would be served and loved and cared for, that we'd be part of the solution, not the problem, that God in heaven would be known and glorified by and in this city more and more and more through our faithful presence. Amen? That's what I mean by our identity as this counter city for the good of the earthly cities we find ourselves in. And it's not just our identity, but I hope that you see the connection now. It's, it's our future. As Clements read for us, the last chapters of the Bible begin this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And the description goes on to talk about the tree of life and the river of life and the nations, its relationship to the nations, all this beautiful stuff. It's incredible. The idea, this idea of the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem, as the final place where God and humanity will dwell together, where heaven and earth will meet in perfect unity with Jesus reigning over us and with us. This, actually, this idea actually culminates all of the things we've been talking about for the last 13 weeks in this series. It gives meaning and it gives promise to the things that we've been considering. That's why we'll pause here. We'll pause here and we will reflect on the meaning of that city next week. 
next week to conclude our series. But as for now, we have an extended time of worship together, and I want to leave you with two questions. I want to leave you with two questions, um, perhaps for you to, to ponder on as we're, as we're worshiping or jot them down and think about them later. But Jeremiah's got them up there. First, how, how has our city led you to encounter the good gifts of God? I don't want you to just blow past that. And if the answer is never, then I, I, would, I would challenge you to maybe do some deeper reflection and to start to open up, open up these possibilities. But how has the city led you to encounter the good gifts of God? I trust that if you've lived in, in Portland for any amount of time, there have been some moments of transcendent goodness and beauty that you've experienced. Have you been able to make that connection, not just to, oh, this is a cool thing, but to the giver on the other side of those experiences, even if it's working through other people, other image bearers? Connected question, how has that been a foretaste of the coming new Jerusalem that we wait for? Because that's what all these, that's where we're going to go next week. All these little moments of beauty and goodness that we experience, particularly in our city here, they are, they're just a little snapshot, a little window into this glorious future that God has promised. Have you been able to see that and make that connection for yourself? Has that been able to, to increase your hunger for the day we wait for? And the second line of thought is this, how might we, we, you and me, our church, the churches of Portland, they're gathered later today, this afternoon, how might we be a foretaste of this coming city for our neighbors here in, in the here and now? May we not just think exclusively in terms of what do I get, what about my experience, what about my enjoyment here and now, how might we be people who are forces, pictures, the city on the hill that actually would make the people around us glorify God because of what they see Jesus doing in through us? That's an important question for us to answer. We'll talk more about that next week as well. For now, let's meditate on it. Pray with me.